Okay, I have a confession to make. I have blessed little international experience. Anybody done some overseas stuff? Cool. My extent of overseas is the Caribbean, pretty much. However, I did get to go on a mission trip to the Bahamas in high school. You know what I mean, right? You do some mission stuff, and then you go to the beach. I mean, <laughs> it was a high school trip, and we did go to the Grand Bahamas, and we did get to do something really cool. We got to do the campus ministry that I was involved with, with Grand Bahama High School, or one of the high schools in the Grand Bahamas. It was great. But we went into the school to promote the meeting we were going to have that night. And so they gave us five minutes in the classrooms or two minutes in the classrooms, whatever it was. This was 34 years ago. Okay? And we went around and we were telling about the meeting and all the stuff we were going to do and the fun we were going to have. And I have no idea what I said that was funny. But it was funny. I have no idea. I wasn't trying to be funny at the time. I was saying something about the meeting. But whatever I said must have sounded really weird to their ears because they were laughing. So if you've ever spent any time overseas, you know that when you get to a place like that, or if you've ever been anywhere where you're just not familiar with the customs, you're not familiar with the way things operate, your freshman year at state, you're like, what is the junction? I mean, whatever it is, you've been somewhere, and you're like, I don't know how to operate in this space. That was it. It was a mission trip to the Bahamas, and I said something that culturally must have been funny. I have no idea. Well, Peter... We've been taught, we're doing a theological explanation, exploration of 1 Peter over the, these last few weeks, these couple weeks. And last week we talked about the fact that Peter gave us, talked about a new identity in Christ. He said, Our source of living hope is this new adoption, this new belonging, this new citizenship in the kingdom of God. And so now, this week, as we look through it, he, another one of his major themes is because you belong to God, this. So because you have this new identity, here's how you should live. Because you have this new identity in Christ, this is how you ought to think and see things. These are the themes. Now, what he, what he says, though, and we'll look at this, is this new identity has consequences for us in this new life in Christ. It sets us apart from the rest of the world in a particular way. This is 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 13 to 17. Or it's Jonah. Hold on just a second. Good thing I know theoretically what order books are in. Here we go. All right, got it. This is starting in verse 13. Therefore, prepare your minds for action. Discipline yourselves. Set all of your hope on the grace that Jesus Christ will bring you when he is revealed. Like obedient children, do not be conformed to the desires that you formerly had in ignorance. Instead, as he who has, he who has called you is holy, be holy yourselves in all of your conduct. For it is written, you shall be holy for as I am holy." If you invoke as father the one who judges all people impartially according to their deeds, live in reverent fear during the time of your exile. So Peter, I mentioned this last week, is writing to a group of Christians, Jewish Christians, ball game voice, a group of Jewish Christians who have been 
dispersed, chased out of Jerusalem into different parts of the Mediterranean. So they're not living in their hometown. They're not living around their friends. They're living out their faith in new communities, unfamiliar, primarily pagan communities. And this is who he's writing this letter to. And so he says, now that you have this faith in Christ, this new identity in Christ, live, first prepare your minds for action. The literal phrase there, if you were to do a deep dive on it, it's going to sound very weird to us. Bind up the loins of your mind. That's the literal, like, semat, semat, Hebrew that's there, okay? <laughs> and what does he mean? It's an idiom. It's a, it's a Semitic idiom. Peter was a fisherman. And what fishermen do, would do is they would tuck their cloak into their belt to free up their legs so that they can move and operate. All right? If you've ever heard the phrase, gird up your loins in church circles, it's the same phrase. In other words, he says, prepare your minds for action. But what he's literally saying is, prepare yourself to be ready to embrace this new life. Suit up <laughs> would be the way we put it nowadays, right? Get your game time. Be prepared. Wear what you need to wear. Put on the appropriate armor is the way Paul puts it in Ephesians 6. So he's, he's calling them to suit up to set their mind for life in Christ. Set a mental resolve to live as a child of God. And he says in verse 13, and set all of your hope for that life in the grace of God, which is a carryover from what we talked about last week. Your living hope is found, it comes from the Father. And because it comes from the Father, He has adopted you as a child. All your hope rests in Him. Then verse 14 and 15, He says, Therefore, live like obedient children. You can see where He's carrying this, right? You've been adopted. You belong to God. You're a child of God. Therefore, be an obedient child. <laughs> kind of carries forward, right? So you've got all your hope is in God, but now that you belong to Him, live as obedient children. I know we've talked about this before. We tend to get that backwards. We think if we're obedient, then God will love us as His child. But even Peter frames it as, because you belong to God, live obediently. You don't earn your status with God. You live out of or from your status. In fact, in verse 16, he quotes Leviticus 11.44. He says, be holy as I am holy. He's quoting God talking to the people of Israel. God's calling the people of Israel to be holy the way God is holy. Flawless, set apart. In other words, our moral character comes or extends from God the Father's character. You have kids that want, we have kids that we want them to be like dad. Right? Kids follow dad and do what dad does. If dad cuts firewood, kid cuts furniture. You know, like, you know, you know what I mean? Like, this is the guy. Well, you cut wood up. I thought I'd cut that wood up. Yeah, that's kind of how my life works at home. You know? We're supposed to be as the father. We're supposed to model for our kids the way that they're supposed to live. And they will end up following, listening, and drawing in way more from us than we care to imagine. And we are to reflect the character of God, our Father. To be holy is I am holy. I remember when I was younger and I would, I was, uh, <laughs> I sat in my little traditional Presbyterian church 
and we did a little crazy stuff every now and then. The youth group would sit on the balcony away from parents and do all kinds of stuff up there because we were bored by the sermon or whatever. You know, you have no balcony, you can't escape my sermons. But we had sat up at the front, up at the back, and somebody had dropped, it was hardwood floors. I remember somebody dropping a pin, and the pin rolled down every step all the way to the bottom of the balcony. You know, we were the peanut gallery of our church. We were up there, and my dad would get on to me about our behavior in and around church. And I remember going to him, why do, if I'm the one that's being bad, if I'm the one that's being disruptive, why is that any reflection on you? It's me. You weren't disruptive in church. I was. Now that I'm a dad, I get it. <laughs> right? If your kid sounds like you to your friends, you go, oh, I taught him that. You know what I mean? There's a whole, no- we're supposed to be like our spiritual dad. We're supposed to reflect his character, to reflect his holiness. That's how we are supposed to live. Be holy as I am holy. Let me define holy for a second here. Is anybody in this room perfect? Raise your hand. Right? Because that's the way we typically characterize holy. Holy, no mistakes, no flaws. And while that's true, holy literally means to be set apart. So you are set apart as children of God. You have, you have value, you have worth. Jesus died for you. In fact, if we had kept reading in 1 Peter 1, that's literally what it says next. You are bought and paid for by the blood of Jesus Christ. You have value and worth. And you were set apart for a life as a child of God. Now, the set apart piece here has everything to do with how we relate to the world around us, too. Because the set apart is you are not to live as you did. He says, I think verse 15, he says, Don't continue to live in the ignorance of your previous ways, but be holy. Peter calls them ignorant. (laughs) Don't live in your previous ignorance. Okay, you know. Don't live the way you understood the world before. Don't live the way you believed before. Don't live as you did before you belonged to God, but live like obedient children. You've been set apart for a special life, and that life has value. Now, unfortunately, that set-apartness, that holiness, that difference in who we are does set us apart from the world. It becomes immediately recognizable When your friends are making value choices that are not consistent with the way Christ wants you to live, and you choose to make that the Christian value choice, you have set yourself apart from that group. They can tell. You're calling yourself out. Oh, you don't do that? Why? Jesus doesn't want me to. You know, whatever your answer is. You You have distinguished yourself from the rest of the world by following and reflecting the moral character of God the Father. Has anybody ever just looked at you and given you this, what, I call the, what I've heard called the doggy-headed tilt? You make a decision, you're with your friends, you're, with, you're in a circumstance with co-workers, and you're not going to do what they're doing, and they go, huh? <laughs> it's the doggy-headed tilt. They don't get it. Like, what? There's something about how we operate that means that we're not like the rest of the world. Verse 17, he says, if you call God... Father, then obey him and hold for him reverent fear while you are in exile. So what is Peter doing? He's talking about being set apart from the world by the way we believe and who we are and who our identity is. 
But we're also set apart from the world in the way that we live. It sets us apart. People notice it. So he says, be in reverence to the Father, have fear of the Father. In other words, he's requoting the way Jesus says it. It is better to obey God and be afraid of God who has your eternal destiny in your hands than the people who might could take stuff from you or harm you. Jesus said to store up treasure in heaven where rust and moth don't destroy and it's better to be afraid of the one who holds your eternal destiny. All they can do is kill you and then you're with Jesus. They can't take you away from the Father. So have reverent fear. Then he says, while you are in exile. So exile becomes a theme throughout, a theological theme throughout 1 Peter. Because he's talking to a group of Christians who are not living in Christian circles anymore. They're not surrounded by people who share their beliefs. The culture has become increasingly and increasingly different than who they are. So when we turn to chapter 2, verse 11 and 12, he gives us some understanding of what that world should look like. Beloved, I urge you as aliens and exiles to abstain from the desires of the flesh that wage war against the soul. Conduct yourselves honorably among the Gentiles so that they may align, that even if they malign you, though they malign you as evildoers, they may see your honorable deeds and glorify God when he comes to judge, when he returns. So Peter says, my beloved, I, as aliens and exiles, we're alien. We're exiles. We're living in exile. People often think about America being a Christian country and how we more or less live in the promised land because of all the things that are available to us. But the way Peter is describing this, it's more like we live in Babylon than the promised land. We're exiles. We've been carted off to a world that's not like us, that we are separate from, that we are different from, that we are called to live differently from. And his first warning in verse 11 is, do not be consumed, do not be enmeshed, do not be swallowed up by the desires of the world around you. And we got all of those living in this promised land, right? Everything is available to you to indulge. Every kind of food, every kind of entertainment, every kind of passion, every kind of desire is at your heart, at your fingertips, literally at your fingertips. Right? It's available to you. And Peter gives a warning, and that warning is an extension of God's character and our identity. Not to be consumed by the desires of the world around you, but to live set apart. Even Abraham referred to himself as a resident alien in Genesis 23. When he's in his sojourn from where he was to the promised land that God was taking him to, he, land, he, he arrives there and he goes, I'm not from around here. Y'all sell me some land for a burial plot. <laughs> he says, I'm a, you ain't from around here, are you? Like, I need some, a place that I can bury my family. He says, I am a resident alien. I am different. I am a part. I'm here on a mission from God. and I need a place to bury my family. So the question then becomes... How do you relate to this world if we're living in exile now? And I believe that we are. There's two prevailing tendencies, two primary ways that we tend to do that. The first one is to fight, to protest, to convince the world that doesn't agree with us to agree with us. Lots of people do that. Lots of people make a whole career about that. 
We want to make the world believe what we do. How has that worked for the church in terms of reputation? What is the reputation of the church by being known for opposing everything that the world desires? He says, don't be consumed, don't be caught up in, as in indulge, but you can also be consumed by trying to change somebody's mind who doesn't believe what you believe. And they see you as judgmental, angry, narrow-minded, hateful, and that's what they're calling disciples of Jesus. So that doesn't seem to work. Because I don't think Jesus would want his children to be known for being hateful. Does that mean we should sit idly by and let evil continue? That's not what I'm saying. But if you're known for what you're against, that's one option. That's one way of relating to the culture. The other way is kind of the other extreme. To be private and passive so your friends don't even know who you belong to. My Christian faith is personal. My Christian faith is private. And if anybody brings it up, it's a secret. That will, get you, that will gain you acceptance. That will gain you popularity. That will keep you in with the rest of your friends, peers, coworkers, you name it. Because they, don't, they will not see you as set apart. If when they're going the way the world with world's desire, you go right along with them, they're not going to know who you belong to at all, are they? So those are two options. You can be quiet or you can be aggressive and protest and fight against the tide. But I think Peter in these two verses in chapter 2 is actually offering a third way of relating to the culture. So even in Peter's day, moral behavior was a high value in the culture. There were philosophers who said you should live this way and all this kind of thing. And so they would... Look for people who had virtue. Virtues were a big deal and lived virtuous lives. Their morality was not based on scripture or God, but, they, but good, bad people did good things. And even in our culture, there are plenty of people who do not have our faith, who do lots of good. Peter's not saying that the world is evil or that the culture is completely evil everywhere you turn. That's not what he's saying. In fact, most of your, a good percentage of your world you're in alignment with the rest of the world, right? Have a job, take care of money, raise a family. Things that the culture values, we value too. We're not in direct opposition to absolutely everything. But what Peter is saying is that when the world does want something that's contrary to what God wants, we choose what God wants. Even if it sets us apart from the world. Even if it costs us something. And he turns to them and says... <clears throat> Live such good lives among those who do not agree with you. Live such holy, moral, pure, virtuous lives in front of those who don't agree with you that even if they malign you for it, even if they attack you for it, even if they accuse you for it, they'll give glory to God because of who you are. That's not a group of people who is diametrically opposed to everything and thinks the world is gone. That's a group of people who are normally living the way that you're supposed to live. And when the tough call comes, you choose the way that belongs to your identity. And that might cost you something. 
it will certainly make you seem like an alien. I mean, we were, when I was in the Bahamas and we were doing the mission trip, for the most part, I'm another teenager too. Until I said whatever it was that made them think it, that they thought was funny about me. Because they weren't laughing at my joke, they were laughing at me. <laughs> All right? So something about what I said set me apart from not being from around there. Okay? There should be some aspect of your life that distinguishes who you belong to. Coming to church on Sunday morning certainly does. After an overtime game, the rest of the world's asleep. Right? <laughs> or having breakfast somewhere by now. But you're part of a Christian faith. You're reading your Bible. You're doing things and chari living charitably, living gracious, living forgiving, loving. And things that people, when the world says, take them out, and you go, nope, I forgive, you're set apart. When the, when the world says, live fast, <clears throat> get all the toys you can, biggest scorecard wins, Jesus says, live sacrificially, save up treasure in heaven, put the needs and the desires of others ahead of your own. That makes you sound and seem like an alien. We are in exile now. So let me give you a quick model from Scripture. How does this work? How do we live within the context of a world that might hate us if they really know what we believe, or we at least think we're just we're crazy? Like, well, why would you believe that? Or why would you live that way? This stuff is better. They don't know that it's not. But that's the deal. Of course, the classic example, and this is, what, this is the metaphor about exile, <clears throat> would be Daniel in the Old Testament. Okay. When Daniel is first carried off into Babylon, literally taken from his homeland, giving a new identity, a new set of clothes, a new name, a Babylonian name. We all call him Daniel. He had a whole other name. Right? So his whole identity has changed. He's transformed. And they tell them, you're going to eat from the king's table. You're going to eat all this great food. The buffet is unlimited. Indulge. And Daniel, knowing the food had been sacrificed to idols and therefore not what a good Hebrew would do, resisted his boss, his captor, his leaders, his people, his government. He says, I can't do this. In fact, Daniel chapter 1, verse 8, it says he resolved not to defile himself. Maybe this is what Peter was talking about when he says, set your mind... To obey Christ. Gird up your loins of your mind to obey Christ. Because literally Daniel's doing the same thing. It says he resolved himself to live set apart. Now the second thing he did is once he had decided, I'm going to live as God would call me to live, even though it runs counter to the culture that I'm in, when he knew it would create an issue, in verse 12 he goes to that leader and negotiates with him and says, look, this is my value. This is who I am. I can't eat that food. And the jailer, the, the guy who was over him goes, yeah, but if you die or you're sick, they're going to come after me. Whole conversation. And Daniel goes, let's work out a deal. I'm convinced that my way of living is so much better for me and more honoring of my God. Give me a trial run. Give me the two-week free subscription before you charge my credit card. Okay? Give me the trial and then at the end of two weeks, I think it was two weeks, at the end of the time period, if we're not healthy, then we'll eat the way you want us to eat. He negotiated. 
He didn't go to the, the leader, who the guy who was over and go, your food's stupid, my food's better, I'm not eating that stuff. <laughs> Nor did he cave and just eat what was put in front of him. He didn't oppose him in a violent way. He didn't impose him in an outspoken way. He just said, for me, that's not good. Can we try another route? In other words, he negotiated with the culture so that he could fit into it, but still live in a manner that God had called him to live. And it's not compromise, because right in verse 8, he says, I have resolved myself not to defile myself. I'm not going to do it. So how can I live in a way that's honoring to the authority over me and still honor the kingdom I really belong to? And he worked out a middle way with his captor and his faith. I'll eat this way, but I'll still serve the kingdom. Now, this is where it gets really interesting, right? Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach. Well, by the way, we know the Babylonian names for his three buddies. And we only know Daniel's Hebrew name. Just interesting sidebar there. But Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that's the four buddies, right? They're in exile. What was their job? Their job was to make the king of Babylon look good. They served in his court. They served in his government. They were brought specifically and educated in Babylonian culture as a, for, to be leaders not only within the Babylonian culture, but specifically with God's people who are in exile. So they're the bridge people. They bring them in, they teach them Babylonian culture, and they get them to train the Israelites to live the way they're supposed to live in exile in Babylon. That's why they were getting the king's table food and all the blessings that go with being a part of the power structure. They're leaders in that culture. That's what their purpose was. Their job was to make sure that Babylon, the country that took them from their homeland, robbed them of everything that they know, hurt, hurt or killed family members and gave them a new name, make sure that government flourishes. That's their job. So they don't get to just go, okay, I'll just go be a good Hebrew over here in Babylon and nobody will know I'm a Hebrew. And they don't have the power to fight an exile structure like that because Babylon is the conquering king. You've got to live under these rules. They couldn't choose the two extremes. Daniel had to find Peter's third way. I can obey God in this, and I will help you in this. Which leads us to the second part of this. He's negotiated. He's, he has set his mind to be obedient to God. But he has figured out how to fit within the culture without defiling himself. But then there's a third part. is what Jeremiah says in Jeremiah chapter 29, verse 7. Seek the flourishing of the city where you are found. It's not only our job to not fight, to fight evil, to resist evil, to flee from evil, to flee from indulging in temptation. But our job in our culture and in our world is to seek its flourishing. And what does that mean? To restore where there's injustice. To feed when somebody's hungry. To adopt when they have no home. To display God's love to people who don't know it. To live as Jesus would live would be to make it our mission to be Daniel to the culture we live in. To not hate somebody because they're different than us. 
to not hate somebody because they've wronged us, to not fight them at every turn simply because they did, and certainly not to hide and hope the world works itself out, but to actually participate in expanding the kingdom of God wherever you are. The rest of Jeremiah 29, he says, live there in exile, marry, build families, build lives, and seek the flourishing of the city, because as the city prospers, so do you. If Starkville's a better city, and Mississippi State's a better college, because you are living out of your identity for Christ, then you are seeking the flourishing of the city from Jeremiah 29.7. It doesn't mean promote evil. It means actually restore what God intended the world to really be. Loving, compassionate, wonderful, without pain and suffering, without tears and anguish. Those are the results of the fall and of sin. And a group of people called to be live in that exile are called to seek the flourishing of the city where you are found. As children of God who have citizenship somewhere else entirely. We don't belong to the old world. We don't live out of the ignorance we knew before. We live in the way that God has called us to live. It sets us apart. But we are supposed to live such good lives in front of them, they wonder why our lives are that way. Why are you more patient? Why are you more loving than my, this other friend? Why are you different? What is it about you that sets you apart from everybody else? I can see it in you. What is it for? And your answer is, I belong to Jesus. I give because he calls me to. I love because he calls me to. I sacrifice because that's what kingdom, citizens of his kingdom are called to do. And that is the third way. And when the world says this is a value and it's against what God has to say, we reject it. We find a way to live in it. And we find a way to show the world what life with God is all about. We're aliens. We're strangers. We're in a foreign land. We don't know the custom. We're not part of the custom. You can tell where we're coming from a mile away. But we're here and God has placed us here for a reason. Let's pray. Lord, you have set us apart to be holy. You have called us to be obedient children, to follow you in all of your ways, to reflect your character. And we confess this morning that there are times when we fail at that. We're not as loving, we're not as compassionate, we're not as patient as we ought to be. And we set our hope in the grace that comes from belonging to you. But by your spirit, empower us to live such good lives in front of the world that they ask, what is our reason for our living hope and our inheritance? In your precious son's name, amen.